Well, that's just awkward. Welcome back to Admissions Uncovered. I'm Michael Gao, and I'm joined, as always, by Dominic and me. Today, we're going to continue talking about standardized testing. Uh, But this time, instead of talking about the big-name tests, the ACT and the SAT, we wanted to talk about more subject-related tests, college board subject tests, as well as their AP tests. First, we want to start with subject tests. There are obviously a whole bunch of subject tests you can take. There are 20 subject tests ranging from languages to math to math one to the sciences, chemistry, physics, biology. There's two different biology subject tests. So there's a whole bunch of them. And so the first thing that we should talk about is how to pick between them. Any thoughts? So first of all, you need to know that you can take up to three subject tests in one date when the SAT is offered. So they're the same time at the same testing centers, except for March. There are no subject tests in March. And also, if you're trying to do a language for the listening portion of languages, they're only offered in, I believe, the November SAT. That's the only time that they have the language, uh, the listening version of the languages. And then otherwise, they're just the normal uh, paper test. And then... You can't do the SAT and subject tests on the same date, so keep that in mind if you're trying to plan out your testing schedule for the rest of your college application. Know that you're going to have to do those on at least two different SAT dates. And then, as always, the SAT dates and all the information will be down in the show notes below. One example that I think I've mentioned a lot of times, just because I think it's a pretty cool program, is the Huntsman program at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Even to apply at all, you have to be proficient in a language. And one of the ways to demonstrate that proficiency is through getting a really good score on a language subject test. Okay, so as Michael mentioned, the subject tests range through a lot of areas such as STEM or humanities. So usually most of the schools will either recommend or require two subject tests. And um, based on your strength, you can decide whether you want to take a STEM subject test and a humanities subject test, two STEM or two humanities. It just really depends on what you think your strengths are, which area you think your strengths are in, and also the courses that you do well in school. That can also help you and pick which subject test you want to take. So for example, if you're taking AP Physics at school and you think you're going to do really well and you've been studying for the AP well, then you might consider taking the physics subject test. But for example, if you're in Spanish and you haven't been really doing that well in that class, then you maybe want to refrain from taking the Spanish subject test. Another way to pick which subject test you're going to take is to base that off of your AP classes. So for example, a lot of sophomores at our school will take AP biology during their sophomore year. So sometimes they'll take the uh, subject test for one of the biologies, as well as world history would be a good sophomore year one if your school does that. And then junior year, of course, you're going to have a lot of AP classes. So go ahead and take some there. And then you need to know what your schools are going to require. So most schools, a lot of the Ivies will recommend that you take two. And when things are recommended in the college application process, always make sure that you can do them. They say that it's okay if you don't do them due to the financial reasons. But there are fee waivers available, so make sure that if you can take them, uh, please do take them. And then also, if you're planning on applying to specialty programs at schools, for example, engineering or medical programs, they're going to have different requirements. So, for example, engineering might definitely require math as well as one of the sciences. Yeah, so as Dominic mentioned, some med programs, like for example, I know at Northwestern, there are seven-year med combined bachelor's and medical school program requires that you take the chemistry subject test and the math two subject test. 
So you got to make sure that if you're looking into um, any specific schools or in particular specific programs, that you look at their requirements because sometimes they might re um, require those subject tests and you want to make sure that you meet those requirements. Yeah, and to jump off of the uh, discussion of med schools, um, obviously like biology is pretty intertwined if you want to be a doctor. I wanted to talk about the biology subject test because there is actually two versions of it biology E or ecological or biology M molecular. And so basically how the biology test works is that all people taking the biology test will have the same first part, general biology. And there's, there's going to be a second part of the subject test that is, you know, either the ecological or the molecular. And uh, to be honest, I think that the uh, ecological one was just easier for me, which is why uh, I took it. The College Board website says that Biology E has more questions about communities, populations, energy flows, so like food webs and the succession, primary succession versus secondary succession, uh, whereas Biology M or Molecular talks a lot more about cell structure, DNA, RNA. So honestly, it depends on which one you're stronger at. And this is just the theme throughout all of these tests, subject tests, AP tests. Choose the test that you're good at. Focus on your strength. So now that we've talked about picking which subject test to take, now we're going to talk about when you should actually take them. So ideally, um, I think most of us would agree that if you're taking AP tests at school, that you should either take your subject test immediately before you're about to take your AP test, which is usually during the May testing date, or immediately after you take your AP test, which would be during June. And usually, as we've mentioned, you take a lot of your AP tests um, junior years, so maybe you should consider taking your subject tests in May or June. Or if you're not taking AP tests at school, or you think that it will be too much to study for subject tests and AP tests at the same time, you can always take like a month or two to, to study for your subject tests, then take them. But you should keep in mind that if you're a rising senior and you want to apply early to college, that August would be the latest time that you can take a subject test because they aren't offered in September and usually I think in October it might be t too late for the first early decision round. Um, and another suggestion I have is that some of these tests can and should be taken early on in your high school career. Um, so one example that comes to mind is Math 2. Um, I think the highest math Math 2 covers is pre-cal. So I took pre-cal after 10th grade. So I took it you know, the June of 10th grade, because I didn't want it to hold over. And you shouldn't want it to hold over either, because uh, as Dominic mentioned earlier, the opportunity cost of taking the subject test is you can't take the SAT. And so when it gets to crunch time and senior time and college application time, and you want to take another SAT to boost your score, you don't want to, at the back of your mind, always be thinking about that subject test. So get rid of these subject tests early on. Do them early on if you have the content knowledge. Um, another thing I want to mention is that schools sometimes have different requirements. Um, so generally, there definitely is a movement away from subject tests. A lot of schools say that subject tests aren't that important. They're optional. We'll take it even though it's uh, not required for everybody. But some schools still do require it. So one instance that comes to mind is Rice, um, as well as UPenn. Now, those two schools say they recommend it. But in my mind, if they recommend it, it usually means that it is required. But generally, these are this is not the most important test. You should not stress out over this single test because 
generally admissions officers say it's not that important anymore. Yeah, so just um, another school that you should be aware of if you're, if you're thinking of applying to Georgetown, they actually require or was it require or recommend um, three subject tests, which is unlike most schools that recommend or require two subject tests. So you just got to be sure that you carefully research um, all the requirements of the schools before applying. And the list of the schools that will require them are in the show notes uh, at admissionsuncovered.com. So if you go to that website, click on the episode link, the link will be there down below. All right, Michael, you talked on a bit about which different schools require different ones. Uh, Do you want to kind of talk about good scores for different schools? Yeah, so... For context, these subjects tests are scored um, out of 800, just like the sections on the SAT. Uh, so what I've typically heard is that if you get a 700 or above, that is a good score. The subject yeah. tests also will have percentiles on them uh, that tell you if you're higher or lower than a certain percentage of the nation. And so there are certainly tests that even if you get an 800, you'll only be the you know 98th percentile or whatever. So there are certainly tests that seem easier or are empirically easier than others. But I think the general rule is that if you make higher than a 700, it's a good t- test score and you should send it to schools. Yep, I would agree. What do you think, Nee? 700 or above is good. And don't be too alarmed with like trying to get an 800 you know, like the whole perfect score, because as Michael mentioned, maybe um, getting 800 isn't always the perfect score because it's based on percentiles. So I know for like chemistry or something, if you're in the 91st percentile, that's an 800. So I think that it's definitely more lenient than the actual SAT. So if you think you're going to do well on that subject test, you should definitely take it. Yep. Like Nee said, these tests are a lot more forgiving than the actual SAT, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, some tests... First of all, there are a lot more questions in one hour. So all of these tests are one hour long, regardless of uh, which test it is. And there's a lot more questions there, but the curve is also a lot better. So for example, on the math section on the SAT, you could only probably miss one and still get 800. But I believe on the SAT subject test for math, you can miss about five and get an 800. And also on the SAT subject test, you can skip questions and you get counted off differently for wrong answers. So you actually lose points for wrong answers on the subject test, unlike the actual SAT where there's no penalty for guessing. Um, So if you have no clue about the question, it might be better just to skip it because you do lose a quarter of a point for each question that you get wrong. Right. So when you um, sign up for an SAT subject test, as Dominic mentioned, you can take up to three in one sitting. So what's going to happen is you're going to go into the testing room and then they're just going to give you a big book with all the subject tests that you can take that day. And you can essentially pick any of the tests um, to take. It doesn't necessarily have to be the ones you signed up for. And then you can take them in any order that you want to. So each of them is just going to be an hour long and you can take up to three. And some people leave after the first one or the second one. So you can just um, sit there and take whichever one you want as long as you don't exceed three. Yep. You can also add subject tests all the way up until right before you take the test. So they have forms there where you can add it and then you just pay later um, on the College Road website. So it does offer a lot more uh, flexibility in the planning for the test, unlike the actual SAT. And if you don't want to take the test, you can either change the test you're taking or I think you can actually leave early. Yeah. Yeah, you can just leave. But don't do that because, you know, money. Oh, they'll just can't. They'll just cancel your score. Dominic mentioned how the scoring for this test was a little bit different than the scoring for the standard SAT. Um, so my question to you guys is how have you studied for subject tests? 
when you've taken them? Uh, yeah, so personally, uh, if you've listened to our previous episode, you know that I like the official test guides because I think they're closest thing to the test, which they are. So what I did is I ordered the College Board um, test prep books. They have a different prep book for each of the different tests. Some of them have two practice tests, like the chemistry one. Others of them have four, like U.S. History and Math 2. And these are previously administered SAT subject tests. So you know that you're getting the real thing. What I noticed from people studying from the different prep books out there, like Barron's and Princeton Review, is, for example, I've told a story before. My friend who was studying for Math 2, who is much better at math than I am, uh, because he's just so much more advanced in his classes, he was studying from the Barron's book. And I, I always heard my friends who have taken the test before talking about having to learn all this trig and all these different uh, memory, uh, me- memorizing these different uh, equations and things. And then once I saw the actual test, I didn't see it there. And once we actually compare the books, uh, I noticed that the questions were completely different because the way they write these Barron's books is they just base it off of what they think will be on the test. But I think that if you get the actual test prep material, you'll see that the questions are pretty similar and you'll be able to better study. Yeah, so going off of what Dominic mentioned by using the official College Board Study Guide, the only thing about those is that they have a limited number of tests that are offered. So I think the Math 2 book offers like four tests, and but the Chemistry one only offers like two tests. So if you're like me and want to get extra practice and you don't really want to use a Barron's book or something like that, because you don't want to spend your money on something that could potentially not help you. You could always try online, free online prep. Like I mentioned in the SAT episode, um, Crack SAT also has practice questions for the SAT subject test. So it's really good. It's split up into different sections so you can work on the topics that you think you need to work on. They have a lot of practice questions, full tests, tests in different sections. So you can use that as an extra study material. Yeah, and the other thing I'll say is that because both subject tests and AP tests are content-based, studying for them really is just about learning the content. So, you know, for Math 2, it's a little bit different because there are weird Math 2 college boardy type questions. But if you're studying for biology, for example, or the science tests, or even English literature, you can probably cross-use your AP study materials or the study materials you have on in class, or you can just go to the College Board website, figure out what concepts they're covering, and you know Google or Wikipedia those concepts. So it's not necessary that you buy a book because these tests are so content-based. You can probably figure out it out on your own, especially if you've already taken the class or if you've just taken the class. Um, in fact, I'd say if you've just taken the class and just taken the AP test, you really don't need to study that much for these subject tests just because they're so similar to the stuff you would do in class. So as you were mentioning, AP classes, AP tests are another type of like standardized test that a lot of people take. So like I know uh, me and Dominic and also Michael going to magnet schools, AP classes and AP tests are really emphasized because they are seen as more academically rigorous than your regular classes or like pre-AP classes. So there are various reasons why you should take an AP class or like how they look to colleges. So one thing is that a big selling point of taking AP classes is that you can potentially get college credit. Like I know some people could enter college having taken a lot of AP tests as a junior or um, usually sophomores or something like that. So um, it depends on each school 
on how much credit you'll get from the AP test. But as I know, taking um, UT, for example, if you get a three or above in most of their AP, on most of the AP tests, they'll give you credit in an equivalent course. It just depends on which test you're taking, how high of a score you're going to get, and then that would determine how much college credit you get. But of course, top tier schools, like a lot of the Ivy Leagues, won't give you credit for these APs, but it, definitely if you're going to a state school, like also UTD, for example, then you can get a lot of college credit, and that could benefit you a lot. Yep, so these AP credits are going to help you out a lot in college. So as we all know, college is expensive. So one good way to get out of these courses that you're going to have to take is to use your AP credit. So the, these scores that you're getting, that you're studying for, can actually save you tens of thousands of dollars, possibly even $100,000. Because some people that I've known personally have been able to go into college as a junior just based off of AP classes. Uh, and especially state schools are going to be very generous with these scores. So make sure that you're looking out for those when you're applying. Because although you might not be getting into you know one of the Ivy League schools, if you can skip two years of college, not only are you going to be able to be working earlier, but you're also going to be saving all of that time and money with your schooling. For sure. But I just want to caution that a lot of schools don't accept AP credits or they will accept it, but only will do it as an exemption type thing. So you still have to take a class. You just take a little bit more advanced class. So really... Do your research, um, as is the theme with a lot of this process. See what school you want to go to. See if they even accept AP credits. And check your priorities from that standpoint. But particularly, though, there's a difference between AP credits and dual credit courses. They're both usually advertised as giving you college credit. And the difference is which schools accept them and which schools don't. So for AP credit, that's on the college ward list. Those are schools that view college ward favorably. For dual credit classes that you might do with a community college, often it's only schools in your state that will take it. So for Texas, all Texas public schools have to take community college courses. But that's not the that's not the case in every single state. And it's certainly not the case that community college classes in Texas will transfer over to another state's public schools or to a private school, even in Texas. So it honestly and always depends on the school you're going to. So um, you mentioned the long-term benefits and the benefits in college of taking AP classes, but what about the benefits in high school? So for most high schools, uh, both of our high schools included, taking AP classes will help your rank and your weighted GPA. So typically the order of things is that there is going to be an on-level class, let's call it a 4.0 class, there's going to be a pre-AP honors class of 4.5 GPA. And there's going to be the AP class, the IB class, and sometimes even a community college class weighted as a 5.0. And if you take more of the 5.0 classes, you can get a lower grade, but still average out to be the same or higher than someone that just took all on-level classes. And the reason why is because if you make 100 in a non-level class, you can only get a 4.0. And it's really hard to make 100 in any class. So GPA-wise, it's probably better to take those AP classes. The caveat, though, is that AP classes presumably uh, will be harder. Obviously, it depends on the school you go to, the context, but they should be harder, and hopefully they are harder. Uh, so my piece of advice on that is to take as many as you're comfortable taking, uh, to ask your friends how hard the classes actually are, and go from there. Because if you already have a really crammed schedule, you might want to take 
for your elective class, not the hardest AP in the world. Maybe you want to take an easier AP or a music class or something like that. So it just depends on your willingness to do work, uh, your willingness to take on all that work. Um, I took a whole bunch of AP classes. I think I turned out fine, but you don't need to if you don't want to. All right. So now that you've filled your schedule with these AP classes, uh, you're probably wondering when is a good study point to begin. Um, A lot of students nowadays and probably since the beginning of time have dealt with procrastination. (laughs) This group included. (laughs) Yeah, this group definitely. Uh, During spring break is usually a good time to begin studying, obviously, you know. You don't want to study during spring break, so maybe start immediately after. But the problem that a lot of people fall into, and I kind of find myself doing that, is you say you're going to study at spring break, and then you say, oh, but, you know, it's like two months out, and then you wait a little bit, and then it comes to a month, and it comes to two weeks, and then you haven't touched a book, and you're just in a bunch of trouble. So if you start breaking it up from spring break, especially if you're taking eight APs, which I don't recommend, but it does help with GPA and stuff. Starting at spring break is definitely going to be a good point, and then maybe even before then. Uh, but you also have to realize that a lot of the classes and most of the ways that these teachers are taught to teach AP classes is to teach for the test. So if you've been doing well in your classes and keeping up, you're already going to know a lot of the knowledge, and the review is just going to be a simple review over the stuff you already know, and it's going to go a lot simpler. But let's say, for example, you had a really hard time in physics, uh, me included. Same. And you had to put in the extra time, so maybe you had to start a little bit before spring break or go to extra tutoring where you had to study for an extra hour each night after spring break to do all on that test. Um, So it just all comes down to what you need and also what score you're trying to get. Uh, I recommend striving for fives because, you know, why not? That's going to be your best bet with any school. But uh, definitely spring break is a good point to start. And in fact, for most top-tier Ivy League private schools, in order to get any credit, you have to get a five, and sometimes they'll take a four. I really haven't seen a school take a three. I don't think Columbia takes threes at all. So. There you go. Yeah, they might do it with the language, but that might just get you a uh, test to place you somewhere. But definitely fours and fives for the Ivy League. Yeah, so as Dominic mentioned, um, what you need to keep in mind is you're going to have a class that is meant to provide you with the content to take this AP test, which is usually unlike the SAT or the ACT or like the subject test we mentioned, where there is a lot of self-studying. So you should make sure that you work hard throughout the year, learn the content as it's presented to you. And then usually at the end of the, towards the end of the course, a lot of the teachers will have review sessions, they'll go over all the content. And like, I know a lot of our teachers gave us like mock APs, which is a really good studies, studying source because they are maybe like past administered APs or release tests. So they're going to be the most accurate representation of what you're going to see on the actual test. So you got to make sure you take those tests as if it were an actual AP so that you can kind of know where you're at. You can see what score you're at now with what you know, so you can identify which areas that you need to work on. But you got to make sure that you don't take any tests for granted. So say you're really good at math and you're going to think you're going to, you're for sure going to get a five on the Calc AP. But as you know, like nothing is guaranteed. So you just got to make sure that you study what you need to, but don't overlook what you think you're already good at. That was definitely me with stats this year. Um, I just had so many tests that I kind of pushed that one off a little bit. And I realized that like the test just was not my friend. I kind of tested all the stuff. I was a little shaky. on. So that five is definitely up in the air. Same. Really? So, yeah. No, that Michael, that test was, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I thought the, um, the question six was weird, but other than that... Yeah. 
Well, question six is like an eighth of the test. Yeah, so hmm. we'll see. We'll see. We'll I, see. I thought the multiple choice was fine. Yeah, the multiple choice is fine. Sidetracked. Make sure you study for your AP test. But also, like, not really. Because it's important to actually prioritize. Because you just don't have all the yeah. time in the world. And if you think you have all the time in the world, you're probably not sleeping enough. You're probably not doing what the other things that you need to do. You're probably not doing your extracurricular as well. You're probably not being a sane human being. So... You also need to prioritize. If you know you're good at biology and you know in all the mock APs you've been making fives, maybe don't work as hard as, you know, in biology. Maybe study the night before a little bit. Brush up on key terms, but maybe you don't need to invest hours and hours before yeah. the test. You know, our advice here is just to make a judgment call on your own situation. Don't take things for granted. If you're borderline four or five, then you should study. But if you're safely in the range of a five, don't waste your time. There's better stuff to be doing than doing practice questions from a test bot, you know, from a non-college board source or whatever. Also, another good way to practice for this is a lot of, or I think all of the AP teachers have a login that will let them get access to past AP tests on the College Board website. So sometimes you'll see teachers give you AP for response questions. Uh, they also have some multiple choice tests to go with that. Uh, usually Michael is the one ranting about problems in the college <laughs> world, but I'm actually the one with a problem today. Um, the college board has kind of outlined their plan to get more test prep material out there, and they released this video in this article. And the problem is the information, they're, they're letting more tests out there, but the information is only going to the teachers. And the, they have to, the teachers have to sign a contract with this information saying that they won't let the test go out of the classroom and that they'll keep it secured. And the students are kind of in the dark. Uh, there really are no good ways to get past administered AP tests like there are with the SAT or the subject test. And I think that by giving it to the teachers, I mean, you're not – the College Board is not going to give those questions out again. It's not like they're keeping those tests secured by only giving to the teachers and they're going to recycle the questions. Those questions are done. Once they're out there, the college board is not going to re-administer them. So I don't understand why they can't just either post them online or put them in a book and then allow the students to be able to practice with them. Because trying to study for APs is kind of difficult when you only have your course material and there's no actual um, information or actual test material that you can study from like you can with the other tests. And, and to make matters worse, there are students who self-study things that don't have a teacher or their school doesn't offer that class. And so what does that kid do? Maybe admins perhaps might be able to get access, but if you go to a massive public school, you know, we don't, but if you do, there's no way to get real study materials from College Board. And, you know, Maybe students and teachers will post this online, you know, not legitimately, but maybe they do. But then you're just, then then there's no point of hiding it behind a paywall if it's possible to get them. You're just making it harder for students who you've already made it hard enough for. So I agree. I agree. Well, I saw that they released that announcement and then I was like, oh, we're actually going to have actual prep material. And then I read it and I was so disappointed. No, they're like, you're no. only giving it to the yeah. teachers. And it's not like they're going to recycle those questions. I mean, they're already out there and people post them online and the kids give them out and all this stuff. And the college oh, board yeah. knows that this is going on. I mean, like they, they follow Twitter accounts of kids who just took the test and banned them within like yeah. 10 minutes of taking the test. Yeah, they're on Reddit. Yeah. They know that these tests are out there. They're not going to recycle them. I don't know why you can't just let students study off them because it just makes the playing field worse. It's just a random roadblock that has no purpose 
at all. It doesn't serve the purpose of preventing kids from getting a test. And that shouldn't be a thing to do in the first place. The goal of the college board should not be to deny study materials from kids who want to study. <laughs> it just makes no sense. College board, if you're out there, I'm uh, welcome to help you with this problem. You can... <laughs> We can talk this over and we can help the students. But, you know, there is also a monetary incentive because teachers have to go through college board training and schools have to apply to get access. And in that process, they will pay college board. There is a reason. There is a reason why College Board, despite being a nonprofit organization, earned $86 million, I think, last year. I don't know the exact number for sure, but it's a big number that nonprofits should not be reporting. And that's only Dominic's hot take. You haven't even heard my hot take yet. My issue with College Board is not that they do tests. You know, like, I, I think there's an issue with the culture of testing and education today, but they're inevitability. I think that an organization should make these tests and should design these tests. Whatever. Totally fine. My issue is with the way AP tests are represented, the way they are implemented. So APs are just complete BS. They signal to colleges, they signal to other people around you that you're a smart person. You, know, you can brag about it. Oh, I took 11 APs. I am so smart. I'm so hardworking. I, I, oh, that person only has 10 APs. <laughs> what a disgraceful human being, you know? So they definitely sig- serve the purpose of signaling. They definitely make it so that uh, there's an easy way to distinguish between students, but they don't actually mean anything. There are study after study and personal experience after personal experience that shows that AP classes in high school are not the same as a college class. You know, one, there's no way to model a college environment in a high school atmosphere, where in high school, there are districts with rules on things like retaking tests and giving late policies that aren't going to be present in colleges. So already, they're not the same. But the second thing is that these are not college professors. I think high school teachers are really amazing for what they do and for the low pay they do it for. <laughs> but they're not college professors. They, 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 they didn't get a PhD in the subject. They're, they're not training their students based on the research they've done. They're training them based on a test. And again, I've had great teachers, and there are great teachers, but they're not college professors with college professor standards and college professor curriculum. They're just not. These classes don't reflect college-level coursework. And, you know, what makes it worse, what makes it worse is not just that these AP classes are complete wastes of time, that there's an opportunity cost to doing things that are a waste of time. When a school offers an AP class, they a teacher has to teach that AP class. A room has to serve that AP class which means that you're not going to have a room for something else. And so you're not going to have a room for on-level classes. You're not going to have a room for you know pre-AP honors in between AP and on-level. And you're not going to have a class for AP plus classes or additional enrichment classes. And so here's the thing. All these students are pressured into AP classes because of how they signal, even though they don't actually mean anything. Schools do the same thing. They want to look good. The U.S. News and World Report rankings come off of how many AP classes they offer, how many AP test people pass, and they get grants and financial incentives incentives for offering AP classes. And we'll put a link in the show notes that has you know a few states, Texas, Oklahoma being two of them, that offer schools money for creating AP tests. And so because every, every school, every 
kid is being pressured into AP classes, what happens to people who don't need an AP class, who need something else, who need something more remedial, who need something perhaps even more advanced? What happens to those people left behind? And the answer is not pretty. There, There's not the bandwidth for them because every cent, every piece of time, every piece of resource of the school and of the student is pushed into AB classes. And students aren't going to speak up because they need to take AB classes because of how they're perceived. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of money, and it is a scam that makes College Board a whole bunch of money. So what classes do you think students that are more advanced should take then? I mean, like, for example, I know, we know people who are, who who took Calculus BC when they're in middle school and are ready for, you know, whatever comes next after Calculus BC. I don't know, like, linear algebra, like, I'm not a math person, so I don't know. Um, There are certain types of engineering classes that aren't in the College Board curriculum that I think could be plenty enriching, but don't get the credit they deserve because they don't you know, signal well. And I keep using that word because it's about how classes are perceived. Students know that they might be learning college algebra, but if it's not coded, not signaled as an AP class, it's not going to look, it's going to take a lot more explaining to colleges and to people around them. You know, it's a lot easier to tell people, I'm taking a level 11 AP classes than it is to say, I'm taking two AP classes. I'm also taking um, a community college class in linear algebra, and I'm self-studying engineering on the side. It's a, it's, I, I just proved it. It's a lot more words to explain it than just saying, hey, I have 11 AP classes. How cool am I? I'm waiting for Dominic to push right. back, but I think I've convinced him. I mean, like, all right, uh, this is not part of the episode, but like, but I think that there should be like a greater difference in the options, right? So, for example, with the SAT, you have your AC, but with your AP classes, there's not much else. So, and I I can say that, um, like you know, taking eleven APs is like a status symbol. So, that, yeah. I mean, that's definitely true at our school. Like, I literally, when making my schedule as a stupid sophomore, was like, oh, eight APs, I'm so cool. <laughs> I mean, it turned out fine, and my GPA is looking real nice because of that. And people ask, like, oh, how many AP classes are you taking? Like, the number of other parents, you know, parents who have asked me that is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I finished with, yeah, I finished with, like, 19 APs, but, like, it really doesn't feel like it. And especially at our school, I don't know. I don't have, like, the sense of a normal school because at our school, as you know, it's, like, only AP classes, basically. So, th- there are no on-level options. Like, there's only one type. I mean, you can kind of get around it with the math classes. So if you're not like that good at math, you're not going to be put into fast track or something. So you won't take BC. But like, if you're not a history person, there is no normal option. It's only exactly. AP. So exactly. at our school, like AP is on level, which is really weird. But like, that's just how it is. What I think it should be less of like an AP class, but more like, so say you offer like linear algebra or something like it doesn't have to be an ap class it's just that like the content it covers is more advanced it just doesn't have to be labeled as that my problem is that it's not that it's not possible to offer these classes it's that the way our education system you know the social structure of schools operates is that we artificially privilege the useless categorization of an AP class. And so my point is that we just got to get away from saying, ah, I got 11 APs, I'm so smart. 
because it's not true. It's it's a meaningless yeah. categorization. It should be about like which classes you're taking. It's really how yeah. you do on the test, yeah. And how well you actually know the content. And you know, like we talked about this in our class rank episode. Teachers at different schools teach differently, even though there is an AP class. Like I'm sure the way teachers at your school teach U.S. history is way different than the teachers than the way teachers at my school do it. Yeah, and we're in the same building, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah I don't, you, you just kind of went like further you, you you're more uh fired up about the uh schooling situation than i am i just like, you know, i'm <laughs> our, i'm still in the system you're you're out of the system I'm out, you can, i can complain yeah, more. yeah you can complain i still have another year of it um <laughs> but i i also like there's just such a disparity in ap like class difficulty for sure that you know like ap chemistry is very different from stats i'm i'm sorry but like it is it's it just true is. and also like i mean i don't know schools just have such different teachers like our teachers are really really good and you're not going to find that somewhere else so i mean we definitely have an advantage but also what i was going to say earlier was that like a- the ap situation at our school is going to be so different from homeschool because at like homeschools or private schools you're going to have you're going to have like three different levels of a class right so you're gonna have regular world history mm-hmm. you're gonna have pre-ap world history and then you're going to have ap world history right and then you get to pick based on how you're doing or your teachers will sit down and talk about it and then they'll say hey you know i think this kid belongs in ap history and then they're gonna put them there but for us i don't really think kids at our school understand the whole ap system like it's supposed to be because ap classes i think are supposed to be like honor classes you know Right, right. But for us, I mean, it's just, it's your normal class. Yeah. And, and and the other thing is that because we've artificially privileged this useless construct, people who should not be in these classes are taking the classes. So, you know, the best of the best in the subject take these AP classes, but so are the people who struggle. And that's not to say the people who struggle are dumb or shouldn't be taught. It's that they need a different class and the option is not there. So they suffer and the people who are at the top of the top are slowed down. So it's bad for everybody. Yeah, I think a student would learn more in like a remedial class where they're focusing on things they need to do than sitting in a class all year not understanding anything because it's just above their level in that in that subject because it's not their subject. And, you know, they're struggling and then they go to the AP test and they get a one. I mean, like, that, how did that help the student? You just showed that the student didn't learn anything the entire year. Yeah. I mean, like, that's specific to our school then, though, because, like, for example, like, at Hillcrest or something, those kids would choose to take just, like, regular world history or something. But there are many instances of just open admissions policies to AB classes where people who aren't ready will just take the class because they think it looks better. True. There's yeah. there's often no, you know, way of weeding kids out. The other, the, the, I think the other pushback to our views on this is that there are studies that show that or just taking AP tests creates positive academic outcomes. Like, I don't know what the dependent variable is, but I know that there's some study that says if you take an AP test, some part of your academic profile is just going to look better. Yeah. Could you ask Kevin about how it is at uh, Plano? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's like basically a homeschool. I mean, it's a big homeschool and the kids are like... Well, it's also a very good homeschool. It's a good homeschool and the kids on average are smarter, but it's going to be like the closest thing. Because, I mean, our our schooling situation is just so different from what's normal. 
I mean, I'll say what's what's it like in Allen because so Allen is a suburban high school of Dallas. I moved to the Magnet School in Dallas, Texas, but I used to go to Allen High School, what we would call in this discussion homeschool. And so, you know, like what I what I kind of found there was that there is the pressure to do as many AP classes as possible. And so my experience of being in an a so-called advanced social studies class and being lagged down by people who like didn't read the textbook or whatever like that's an experience i had back in allen because it was an open admissions policy anybody who wanted to join it joined the class and there were people who just weren't ready for that type of class but still joined it because it was it's ingrained into them that taking ap's will make you smarter or that it looks good to take ap classes yeah also at homeschools it's going to affect your gpa a lot more mm. um, because yeah. you know at our school like we do an unweighted thing for class rank but I'm pretty sure at most homeschools, like it's it's just weighted that determines that. And I mean, I know my friend who did six APs sophomore year. He just his GPA blew everybody else out the water because he has six classes that are on a 5.0, and I had three classes that were on a 5.0 with APs, and I was like at the t- at the top of the students who were taking, or in the top group of students who were taking the most APs. A lot of them only took two. So if you have a kid that's taking six, I mean, he could. He could pull 90s all year and still have a better GPA. And so I do think that it does determine GPA a lot. And to be honest, I think what's ideal is you have, you know, very customizable levels, like a remedial and on level, honors, AP level, if you still want to use this fake construct that gives college board a lot of money, if you still want to do that, and like a, <laughs> you know, advanced, advanced class. And so what that lets you do is it lets you say, get rid of this weighted GPA system. Everybody has the same uh, weight to their grade because the coursework they're doing is fitted to them. And so getting a, you know, 95 in an advanced class is equivalent to getting a 95 in the remedial class because the two students started from a different place, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know if that was the clearest way of explaining it. But like, the point would be that if you have a remedial student who just didn't start with much, getting a 95 in a remedial class with the remedial content, that means the progress they've made is the same as someone who's starting from a higher yeah. point, i.e. an advanced class. So like, if you're measuring it by growth? Yeah, by progress, by growth. Yeah, exactly. Growth versus proficiency. There you go. That's a whole other debate. I think it's true. Well, thanks again for tuning in and uh, bearing with Dominic and I's hot take rants. Um, but that was our episode on subject tests and AP tests and on the test industrial complex that is College Board. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you've gotten some useful information, useful advice. And if you want to support us, we could really use your help at patreon.com slash admissions uncovered. Or if you just don't have the money to spare, because trust me, I know that I used to not have that money to spare, you can support us just by going to the Audible link at audibletrial.com slash AUPod. If you have questions about this episode, feel free to leave them in the comments below or in our contacts contact us form on the admissionsuncovered.com website. And follow us on social media if you have any more episode requests or questions. Thank you all for listening. It means a lot to us, and we'll see you next time. Me, what do you think? Yeah, um, I don't know. Same. M- mildest hot take of the year. <laughs> yeah.